The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Go ahead and grab your seat, if you would. Thank you all for wonderful voices this morning, songs of praise. And you can take up your Bible, turn to Genesis 14. And when you bow with me one more time in prayer as we begin our time in God's Word this morning. Father, your word is a treasure to us. It lights up our way, shows us how we are to walk. Lord God, your word encourages us. It encourages and builds us up where we are doing right and where we are doing well. And your word convicts us where we are doing wrong, where we are falling short and failing. And it is all done in your word with a spirit of gentleness. Father, we thank you for your word. These are not just mere words of men, but these are the very words of God. And so as we open this morning, as we give our attention to your word, as we study it, I pray that you would help us to receive it as the very word of God that we would not leave here just the same as we have come in, that we would be encouraged as appropriate, that we would be convicted as appropriate, that we would be strengthened in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would send your spirit this morning to accomplish that work among us. It is a work that is impossible for man, even the very best preacher, which I know I am not, but even the very best preacher could not accomplish that work. It must be a work of your spirit. And so send your spirit this morning to work and move among us that we might know your word, that we might cling to it for life, that we might be changed by it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We continue our study through the, the book of Genesis, and we're looking at the life of Abram right now. And Abram... If you spend time reading the Apostle Paul, Abram comes up over and over again. In the book of Romans, this is Paul's gospel of grace. It's Paul's systematic theology, the book of Romans. He uses Abraham as a central figure for justification by faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Justification by faith. When I think of Abraham, I think of covenant. When I think of Abraham, I think of circumcision. Those two things then went together. There was the covenant, and then there was the sign of the covenant. Just like we saw with Noah, there was the covenant. God made a promise, I will never flood the earth again. And God gave a sign, which is the rainbow, 
with Abraham, there is a covenant that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And there is a sign that goes along with it, which is circumcision. But Paul, Paul, in, in looking at Abraham as an example of justification, he puts so much emphasis on Abraham before circumcision, before Abraham was circumcised, before this sign was even given. In fact, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 12, he says that the Jews should walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. It wasn't just when Abraham was circumcised, now there's this change and he's walking in faith. No, circumcision followed the faith. It was a sign of Abraham's faith. As we've seen so far in our study of Abraham, he is far from perfect. He is an imperfect man. But he is, and I want to encourage you with this, he is one that by God's grace is growing in faith. He is one who is growing in faith. He is one who is walking in the footsteps of faith. And we see those footsteps of faith this morning in Genesis chapter 14. We see Abraham walking by faith, and we see Abraham with his focus being the praise and the glory of God. And so that's kind of big summary of where we're going this morning. Abraham walking by faith and Abraham giving praise and glory to God. Now, we start out in chapter 14 in these first seven verses with these names and these kings and these places and years given. They're important, but what I, I, I want you to see this morning is that we have this central figure, this central king. He's mentioned in verse 1, Shedder Laomer, and he... And his guys, right, his, his three fellas, the, the other kings along with him, they're going to subdue other nations. They are going to mop up. They're going to clean up. They're going to put others under their thumbs. And so here they go. They're making a big sweep. Now, these five other kings, Sodom and Gomorrah and others with them, they had been under Shedder Laomer for all of this time, for 12 years, verse 4. And they finally had enough. In the 13th year, they rebelled. We've had enough. We're not paying tribute. We're not giving taxes to this guy anymore. And so he, Shudder Laomer, with his buddies, his other king friends, they come to make a sweep, and they want to put these five kings and these five nations back under their thumb. So this is verse 5, the 14th year, Shudder Laomer and the kings who were with him, they came and they make this big sweep. And they put all of these under, other nations under them once again. And then verse 7, they turned back. They came to En-Mishpat and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. And then verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. So that's five went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Shedolaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Going, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. 
So Shadow Leomer and his buddies, they've wiped out everybody else, and now it's time to get these five kings subdued once again. And so this is all setting the scene for something that is significant, something that is important for us and important for the history of redemption. We read in verse 10, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to, to the hill country. Not much of a battle. I want you to understand, Shedder Laomer and his king friends and their armies were formidable. They were a strong force. They came, they started wiping out others. They're in charge. Nobody can stop them. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and three other kings and their armies, they go and they think, we are going to rise up. We're not going to be under him any longer. They're unsuccessful. Shetterleomer and his three king friends are the victors. We read in verse 11, the enemy, that is Shetterleomer and his three king friends, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So they're just cleaning up as they go. And then we're told in verse 12, and this is where it gets, comes a little closer to home for what we've been studying, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who is dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. They clean up, they wipe out Sodom, Gomorrah, they take everything with them. And then in verse 12, we're told, oh, and included in that was Lot. Now, who was Lot? He was Abram's nephew. Who was Lot? He was the one that had traveled with Abram. Who was Lot? He was the one that was also rich along with Abram, so much so that their land could not uh, continue to support all of their livestock. And as Seth led us through last week, Abram gave Lot the choice. You choose the land that you want, and you go that way, and I'll go the opposite way. If you go to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go ahead, and I'll go to the right. Lot, you make the choice. And do you remember Lot's choice? The land that he chose, the Jordan Valley, it was lush, it was beautiful, it was full of green pastures, no problem, it would support all of his livestock, so he went that way. And we read in chapter 13 that he also didn't just go into the Jordan Valley, no, chapter 13 verse 12 says that he went as far as Sodom. And Moses tells us that it was known that that was a city known for being filled with wicked men. He takes and he pitches his tent outside of Sodom. And that's where we left Lot last week. Now... We read in chapter 14, in verse 12, that they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was in a tent outside of Sodom? No, what does it say? He was dwelling in Sodom. How did Lot, the nephew of Abram, end up as a prisoner of war? Losing all he had, being carried off to a foreign country? I think Seth said it well last week. This is 
compromise. And compromise leads to further compromise. Seth said that Lot's choice of land was determined by ease, comfort, and toleration of the wicked in order to enjoy some of the delicacies made available by them. Just going as far as Sodom and living in a tent wasn't enough. He then moves into the city, dwelling in Sodom, no longer a tent dweller, and he's taken captive when Sodom is destroyed by Shadolaomer and his three king friends. Now, you can jot this down. It's, we'll get there in a, in a number of weeks. But in Genesis 19, where do we find Lot? He's back in Sodom. And he has a house. He goes back and he establishes himself once again in Sodom. It wasn't enough to go there to live in a tent outside of the city. He moves into the city. And then even when he's taken captive as a prisoner of war, and what we see in this chapter is Abram goes and saves him and rescues him. And what does he do? Like a dog returns to its vomit, a fool returns to his folly. Lot goes back to Sodom. Compromise leads to further compromise. Bad decisions tend to bring along with them many friends. And that was true for Lot. And so we see the compromise of Lot now dwelling in Sodom. And he is then taken along with all of his possessions and everything that he had And he's a prisoner of war. So not only the compromise of Lot, but I want you also to understand there are the consequences of his decisions. You think, I can compromise. They're just small things. One step after another. Bad decisions bring along their friends. But it's not that big of a deal. There are consequences In deciding to dwell in Sodom, Lot was choosing to make decisions against God's will. He was choosing the company that he would keep and those that he would associate with. Peter, in his second letter to Peter, chapter 2 and verse 8, he references Lot and calls him a righteous man. And he says that he lived among the people of Sodom day after day. But as he did so, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He was not in good spiritual shape. He was being tormented in his soul day after day by the people that he chose to surround himself with. There are consequences to these poor decisions. So if Lot really is is the central figure of these opening verses, Lot does not serve as a good example to be followed. Lot serves as a very poor example, one that we should learn from so that we might avoid making these same mistakes that Lot made. Lot is the antithesis of walking by faith. Lot saw the Jordan Valley, tangible, green, lush, I want that. And he went And the enticements of Sodom, whatever they were for Lot, and he said, I want that. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to pitch my tent. He is the antithesis of walking by faith. He compromised. He compromised further, and consequences came. Lot 
taken now as this prisoner of war. And then in verse 13, we make this transition. Lot being the antithesis of walking by faith. Now, Abram comes back into the story in verse 13. And we see in Abram the wonderful grace of God at work that enables Abram to walk in footsteps of faith. One who had escaped, verse 13 tells us, came and told Abram the Hebrew. I'll just note, that's the first time we come across that word, Hebrew. That's all I'm going to say about it this morning, maybe planting the seed for community group. Came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, I punched this into Google Maps. Oaks of Mamre (laughs) all the way up to Dan. It didn't work. But I was able to to find the modern equivalents of these. And in Google Maps, you can actually track this. It won't give you driving directions because I don't know if there are no roads, but it's going from Israel into Syria. Maybe they say no go. But it'll show you walking distance and walking time. Over 120 miles that Abram and his 318 trained men would have gone. And you know, in Google Maps, it'll also show you the time that it will take. 66 hours is what it showed. 66 hours of of foot time, of walking time, that Abram and his trained men would have had to travel. Abram shows an incredible Christ-likeness. The distance that he would have had to travel. It was a great distance. And with such a great troop, 318 men, I don't know if you've ever traveled with a group, typically doesn't speed things up. It just slows things down. And they go all of this way. Was there any requirement for Abram to pursue Lot? None. Why? Abram could have said, Lot, he made his bed. Let him lay in it. It's natural consequences for the compromises that he's made. But that wasn't the attitude of Abram. He goes to great personal effort and great risk to rescue Lot. Think about this. Think about what Abram did. He could have lost his life. He could have gone with 318 of his trained men, and they could have all been wiped out. I mean, this is Shedder Laomer and and his three king friends and their armies that just made this big sweep and wiped out everybody, trained soldiers, trained armies. And Abram? And 318 of his servants, of his trained men, they're, they're now going to go? That was a lot of risk. And a great number of provisions to travel that distance. Taking all of his men, or 318 of his men, away from his home, away from his herds, So that those left behind then would be even more vulnerable to attack, whether by man or by animal. And what did Abram have to gain by it? What did Abram have to gain by going in pursuit of Lot? Lot. Lot. Lot who chose to live in Sodom. Lot, who chose to have his righteous soul tormented by the compromises that he made. But Lot, though he was undeserving, 
Lot was precious to Abram. And so Abram sacrificed greatly for the rescue of Lot. Do you see this great picture of Christ-likeness? What did Christ do for me, for you? Why? What, were, were we a great prize? Were we anything better than Lot for Christ to come? For Jesus to, to bleed and to die for you and, and for me? And why did he do it? For us. For us. That we might be redeemed, that we might be in relationship with our heavenly father. Jesus came from heaven to earth, took on human flesh, lived a perfect, a sinless life. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was reviled, he was persecuted. He was crucified. So much that that Jesus went to such great lengths in order to rescue us. Abram shows us this incredible Christ-likeness in pursuing Lot, and he was going out by faith. He had no guarantee. What confidence that could he have that he would be successful, that he would beat this army, that he would win this victory? Now, Abram wasn't acting presumptuously. He wasn't putting God to the test. But he did have the promise of God. Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he goes in faith in order to be a blessing to Lot. And this is the way that walking in the footsteps of faith works. When Paul says that Abram was walking in the footsteps that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised, this is an example of walking in those footsteps of faith. It takes the promise of God and it acts on them. It moves on them. It enables us, the promises of God, walking by faith, enables us then to live Christ-like lives. Even like Abram was now living a Christ-like life in his pursuit of Lot. This is what Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2. He says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. There's promise. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's promise. This is what Jesus has done for us. And Paul finishes that. A people for his own possession who are zealous. For good works. That is the gospel at work in the life of a believer. We hear the gospel, we receive the gospel, we meditate on the gospel day by day, and it works in us that we might live it out, that our, our thoughts, our words, our actions might be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be zealous for good works, that is Christ likeness. And so I ask you, dad, mom, where are you acting on the promises of God and walking in footsteps of faith with your children? With your children. For Abram, in our example here, though Lot wasn't, wasn't Abram's son, he was his nephew. And, and Lot's father had died, and so Lot had really come alongside of Abram, almost like a son. And for Abram, it meant pursuing this rebellious nephew. 
continuing to show him grace upon grace. The great kindness that Abram showed. Acting on the promises of God and then walking in the footsteps of faith. Teens, preteens, what does walking in the footsteps of faith and Christ likeness look like for you? What would it look like for you today, tomorrow? when school starts back up, to walk in footsteps of faith and Christ-likeness. As you consider your start in college, or you think about this new school year coming up, how will knowing that you've been purchased, you've been bought with the powerful blood of Christ impact the way that you think and the way that you act, and the way that you speak, taking the promise of God, he has bought you with his own precious blood. How does that transform you to be zealous for good works? It's a response, isn't it? It's a response of gratitude. It's not a response of earning. I want to get this. I want to earn the favor of God. It's meditating on what you have been given freely, that is grace by God, and having your heart melted by that and saying, my response to the goodness of God, I want to give all to him. I want to live for him. I want to do whatever I can to display his glory. I want to do all that I can so that everybody else I interact with, classmates, teachers, whoever it is, that they would see, that they would hear, that they would know the love of God in Jesus. Abram took the promise of God And he was walking in footsteps of faith. We read in verse 15 that he divided his forces against them by night, used stealth, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram is a hero. He's a military hero. He has the victory. Seems like against all odds, he goes and he wins. He wins this battle. God blessed Abram. God gave him this victory as he walked in footsteps of faith. And notice the recognition that Abram receives Now, as a war hero, we read in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Shedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. King of Sodom hears, Abram won. It sounded impossible. It seemed like a suicide mission, but Abram won. And he's coming back with all my stuff because my whole town was taken away and everybody along with it. And so the king of Sodom is quick to go out and to meet Abram. And verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Before we're told anything more now about the king of Sodom, this other king breaks in whose name is Melchizedek, and we're told that he was the king of Salem. Many believe that that is what we know as Jerusalem, the king of Salem. And he brings out bread and wine. He brings out a meal. I don't want you to think when, when he brings out bread and wine that he brought out just a little cracker and a little cup and gave that to Abram, right? These are the, the elements of communion, but no, he's bringing a meal. He is offering provisions to Abram. 
And we're told in verse 18 that this Melchizedek, king of Salem, that he was priest of God most high. He was priest of God most high. Now that's something that you're not going to see of a king in Israel. To be a king and to be a priest, the kings could not be priests. Saul tried it, lost his kingdom. David knew, I am a king and a worshiper of God, but I am not a priest. Only one would come who would be both king and priest and prophet, and that is Jesus. But here we have this intriguing character, Melchizedek, who is king of Salem and priest of God most high. And if you remember in our study through Hebrews, we learned a great deal about Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So you take that name, Melchizedek, and translate it. It's my king is right or my king is righteous. So he is first king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, the author of Hebrews tells us. So just like Abraham showed us this great Christ-likeness, Melchizedek comes. Are you seeing the way that Melchizedek comes and shows great Christ-likeness as well? Perhaps even greater than what Abram showed us? We're told such a little amount about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But it's expanded upon in the New Testament. And the New Testament shines light back into the Old Testament that we might understand more about Melchizedek and his place in the redemption story. He's presented as a forerunner of Jesus. In Psalm 110, this anticipates the Messiah that Jesus would come in the priestly order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews, he unfolds this for us. He unpacks it for us that we might know more about Melchizedek. He shows great Christ-likeness. He brings to Abraham bread and wine. As I said, those are the elements that we use in celebrating communion. Those are the elements that Jesus used in instituting the Lord's Supper. And he also brings a blessing. Verse 19, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God most high. God promised in Genesis 12 that he would bless Abram. I will bless you. I will bless the nations that bless you. And here, Melchizedek points back to that promise of God's blessing and shows that God is faithful to accomplish what he said he would do. Melchizedek isn't really saying anything new. You have been blessed, Abram, by God most high. There is none higher than God. And he is possessor of heaven and earth. That is who this God most high is. He's creator. He is the one to whom all things belong. Colossians tells us that it is in him that all things hold together. So you think about God possessing all things. He is holding all things together. And so Abram, he didn't win his battle by his might, by his strength of numbers. No, he won by the blessing of God. And that's what we read in verse 20. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies 
into your hand. Abram, it is God who should receive the glory. It is God who gets the praise. And Abram's response in the second part of verse 20 is that he gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 4 makes clear that this was a tenth of the spoils. So when Abram went and he was victorious in the battle, he came back with all of this loot, all of the possessions, everything. And it was a tenth of all of this that he gives now to Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth, a a tithe. It's the first mention in the Bible of the tithe. And, And I want you to note that it's not tied to law. It's not tied to legalism. This was given out of reverence and gratitude. Abram gave this to Melchizedek. He knew that he was in the presence of one that was even greater than himself. And having received a blessing from this one, Melchizedek, he gave him a tithe. He gave him a tenth. It's beautiful. And it's encouraging the generosity that Abram shows. Paul speaks a great deal about giving in the New Testament. He was writing to the, to the church at Corinth because they were taking together an offering, a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul is giving them instruction regarding their giving. And he says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that each person should give as they have decided in their heart. For God loves a cheerful giver. And that's what we see here. Abram, in response of gratitude and reverence, gives this tenth to Melchizedek. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 13 that the saints who received their generosity, listen to this, the saints that received their generosity would glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Did you catch that? They would glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Our giving is absolutely tied to our confession of the gospel. Our giving is absolutely tied to our confession of the gospel. And our confession of the gospel must be tied to our generous giving. Abram Abram gives a tenth of all the spoils to Melchizedek. And now in verse 21, the king of Sodom comes back on the scene And he said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. This defeated king, Sodom. Earlier when we read about him, we read that he fell into the tar pits. We don't know if that was him literally or or his army, but, but somehow now he's back. Ashamed, I would imagine. Having nothing And here comes Abram with 318 of his trained men winning this great victory, bringing all of the stuff back. And Sodom goes out to meet him, the king of Sodom, and says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In contrast to the blessing that Melchizedek brought, giving to Abram, the king of Salem is or king of Sodom, excuse me, the king of Sodom is making demands. He really has no rightful claim to anything in Abram's possession. But do you notice the spin that he puts on it? So it sounds like he's generous. Hey, Abram, I'll let you keep half. You give me the people and you keep all the stuff. Sounds like a good deal. 
Abram rejects the offer. But in a most surprising way, look at verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. That is Jehovah. He is the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let honor, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Abram rejects the offer of the king of Sodom who said, give me the people, you keep all the stuff. And Abram says, "Uh uh-uh, no, we're not cutting any deals. Let me tell you how this is going to work. I'm going to give you everything, Abram says. I'm not going to keep a thread. I'm not going to keep a shoelace for myself. I am going to give it all back to you, King of Sodom. Why? Why? Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'm going to give it all to you, King of Sodom. Because I don't want you getting any of the glory. I don't want you getting any of the credit. God alone, Jehovah, the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He is the only one who will get the glory in this And that was what Abram was driving for, wanting only the praise of God. And so here we see also another display of Abram's walking in the footsteps of faith. His chief concern was the praise and the glory of God. Even before the covenant of circumcision, Abram shows that he had a circumcised heart. Imperfect, but a circumcised heart. He wanted the glory of God, not seeking the praise of man, but the praise which comes from God and God alone. Abram, in this chapter, should challenge us. What about our hearts? Do we show a circumcised heart? Do we show the same heart that Abram had for his rebellious and compromising nephew, Lot, to give so much, to risk so greatly, to go in pursuit of Lot? Is that circumcised heart evidenced by footsteps of faith? How is that being carried out? How is that being lived in our lives? And and maybe you're at a place in your life where you're saying, yes, I'm taking footsteps of faith, but they just seem like little toddler-sized steps. And if that's where you're at, that's okay. God will grow you. God will mature you. God will allow you to take even greater and larger and bigger footsteps of faith. But the important thing is that we walk in obedience and that we do take those footsteps of faith as God directs. Allow him to do the work of growing us, to seek the praise of God and to seek the glory of God, and that will grow you in your faith. And so like Abram, we should be walking by faith. Like Abram, we should be taking these footsteps of faith. And like Abram, we should be working to give praise and glory, not to the king of Sodom, not to any other man, but that God and God alone would be praised. Amen? Would you pray with me again? Father, we thank you for the example of Abram, one that I I think we all in various ways can relate to, 
a man who is called by you, a man who failed, a man who erred, a man who sinned, but you were faithful to him. You had given promises to him and concerning him. And Lord, I know I can relate to that. I see that in my own life. And we, like Abram, Lord God, we want to walk in faith. And we want to exercise these footsteps of faith. And we want to give glory to you. And we struggle. Lord God, I pray that you would give us a greater heart, even as our brother Seth was praying for us this morning as a congregation, that we would see revival here in the Hood River Valley. Give us a greater heart for the souls of people, that when we see people like Lot who are being tormented in their soul, even if it's by their own decisions, that we would pursue them that we would speak to them words of healing, words of grace, the words of the gospel, and that we would live in a way that is consistent with those words that we speak to them. Give us a heart for the lost, the wandering, the rebellious. And Lord, give us a heart for your glory that we would not be doing any good work so that man would praise us, that we would be recognized by others. Lord God, we simply want to be those that reflect your glory. Even as Jesus said that people would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. And so would you work in us in such a way to bring glory to your name? What an honor that would be for us. What a joy that would be for us. Would you do that, Lord? Because we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.